This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Mukti. Mukti is an associate teacher at Open Gate Sangha in Northern California, which she co-founded with her husband, Adyashanti, in 1996. In her own teachings, Mukti points audiences back to their natural state of wholeness, or undivided consciousness, and brings flavors of feminine quietude and nurturing as well as kinesthetic, visual, and precise pointers to truth. With Sounds True, Mukti has recorded a six-session audio learning series entitled The Self in Full Bloom, Teachings and Practices for Embodied Awakening. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mukti and I spoke about different definitions of awakening and how to understand why some people after a dramatic awakening, still exhibit behaviors that seem self-oriented and self-motivated. We also talked about Mukti's own experience of awakening and how it changed her experience of being a person. I also talked to Mukti about her relationship with Adya, the inside story. And finally, Mukti offered us a practice in embodied self-inquiry. Here's my conversation with Mukti. Mukti, to begin with, I'd love to talk with you about a subject that you address in your new audio series, Embodied Awakening. And I'd love to know what you see as the difference between a disembodied awakening and an embodied awakening. Okay. That's a that's a fantastic question that I haven't heard before actually. Well, in my experience from from the people who I have worked with as well as my own personal experience, if a more uh, sudden awakening occurs where there's a uh, a falling away of the personal identity and a sense of uh direct knowledge of our nature as spirit, as reality, there is usually a following period in of any number of years, really, in which that, that knowing of reality that, that comes into that incarnation of that person um, begins to really inform that person's movements, expressions, and their 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 whole way of being. And so during that time period as that that knowledge of reality is really taking up resonance in a very functional way, there can be 
some transition happening with a person who who may have vestiges of the construct of the the previous paradigm of living which they operated from prior to that awakening in which case um their actions expressed through those vestiges of the the previous paradigm as well as uh those expressions finding their way through this new paradigm of of awakened living and so as that transition occurs um there can be a greater or lesser degree of of uh functionality in that that in embodied expression of the new paradigm um so it really depends upon which vestiges remain in in a, give, a given person how how that expression of awakening will look you know there's there's um I, so i guess i would say that disembodied awakening would be um expression in the world that doesn't reflect the conscious knowing of one's nature as spirit or as truth. So so um you could say that you could also call disembodied awakening um unconscious activity or um activity that that is perhaps influenced by previous conditioning or illusions. Um so it just really looks different according to which person. Um I remember hearing an analogy once early on when I was listening to Audius teachings where he spoke about awakening as though um it was a jump on a bungee cord where you went from A to Z and that at some point uh as the bungee cord tightens again after being stretched you may land back somewhere at D or J or M but um where you where you land back at kind of reflects almost like how much of that um thoroughness of awakening will function more fully in expression and how much of it will will be um reflective of your former life and your former conditioned uh expression so mm-hmm. it just really varies by person and each person's personality will influence the the specific types of expressions and and if if you want we could talk about that more i could talk about my own my own personal experience and my own yeah let, um, let's hear a little bit about that I mean, yeah. in your life did you have a sudden breakthrough like the kind that you're describing sometimes happens yeah, I did. And and we could also also talk about awakenings that are not so sudden, but just I was trying to to present it in a more simplified way for for the the time we have here. But um yeah, I had a a a, a more sudden awakening occurred, uh, very sudden in some ways, and yet looking back, there was so much leading up to it that that could be said to be, you know, a gradual um uh, I'm not sure the right word. Sort of a gradual um, influx of consciousness, you know, prior to that sudden awakening. Um, but you know, on the heels of that, certain obvious parts of my personality structure fell away, um, and then 
other other parts uh, didn't kind of rear their head until till later on, months or, or years down the road, where where um, parts of who you know how I developed as a human being earlier in my life um, became I became more conscious of them and and uh, and was able to look at those afresh and and um, and basically liberate those patterns as well. So initially, like the the one that I remember most clearly is is this sense of um, a sense of a, so much fear fell away, and um, I mean initially it, it felt like just the notion of fear wasn't so comprehensible, and in particular, um, let's see, like I had been studying Chinese medicine at the time and I had been studying all these different diagnoses of, of different patterns of um, imbalanced health and, and disease and and as a student I would as I was learning those patterns I would feel like I was referring to my own direct experience of these these energetics of, in these patterns and, and I literally felt like I could have you know either all of these diseases um, about to, you know that they could happen sometime in my future, given given my set energetic patterns of health, and um, and after that, there was just a completely different relationship to my studies of this energetic medicine, where where um, there was just no fear at all that that they related at all in any way to to my personal health or my personal body um, in any way. So um, just like some kind of tendencies of of you know hypochondria, I don't know that it was so severe, but just some tendency in that direction just like completely fell away, and so a lot of my conversations changed. You know, I wasn't talking about you know my health or what I was doing for my health or things like that, and and I think people who knew me well um, noticed it for sure because because uh, it had, it had been a huge huge percentage of the conversations that my days would would uh, would involve. So, Mukti, you've been telling us about the before and after, but I'd love to know more about the actual awakening itself, quote-unquote awakening, in your experience. Okay. So um, I'm going to start just a little bit more before the awakening to set set the stage. Um, but I had been been studying with with Adya for the better part of a year and and he had the greatest influence I believe on the events that that led up to the awakening um and meaning he had really been teaching me about the nature of um d- a different type of meditation than I had um been exposed to before he he for the first time really exposed me to self-inquiry and um I was following his instruction on that and on a regular basis and exploring self-inquiry. And in particular, I was became interested in a question that I, I took for my own, meaning it wasn't one that he had uh, suggested or assigned. And um, the question that I, I really felt the most um, engaged in was the question, what is rest? And it had a context in which, um, at the time, I was just exceedingly busy working multiple jobs and going to school full-time. 
and I knew that the, some of those uh, various frontiers that I was busy in would would um, wrap up soon. So I just I just continued to to um, remain in them. And while I was doing that, I felt like I had very little time for my spiritual practice. I lived with this question: What is rest during my activity during the day? And so what surprised me about this inquiry was it started out as something that almost felt like a kind of survival, like how how do I find rest and equanimity amidst all this activity? And, and um, it felt almost like necessary just to be able to function well was to tap into that sense of rest. So it had a personal element. But when it really started cooking was on Adya's first retreat when he gave this talk on the nature of stillness. And I was listening, and I I really could tell that he was speaking of stillness in a way that that I didn't know. I didn't know the kind of stillness that he was talking about. You know, I knew the kind of stillness of, you know, like a, a ball that's rolling around on the ground, like rolling to a stop. But... You know his his sense of stillness was was something that my mind couldn't put a picture on, but I could feel it as he was talking that that it was something very very much um, functioning and expressing in this moment. And so I sat in meditation uh, late later that night at the retreat alone after everyone had gone to bed, and and I dropped the question that he. The question, what is stillness, into my being, and I dropped it in a way that um, he had instructed us to do, which is to sit as though we were sitting as a as a, a lake, like a like a clear mountain lake, and that the surface of the lake was at the top of our head. So I was I was sitting, and I felt like okay, the surface of the lake of my being is just on the flat of the top of my head, and and I'm going to drop a question like it were a smooth pebble or stone into that lake, and that question, that stone is going to be imbued with this question, what is stillness? And I, I let my awareness my 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 attention my soft attention just follow follow that stone into the depths of my being and i just let it ripple throughout the room and beyond the room and i let the whole feeling of this word stillness and this sense of stillness as it rippled, just like sing to my whole system, my whole body, and my whole being, and um, my my thinking mind, my my attention, my my body, everything mapped to this like rippling of stillness in 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 awareness, and I just merged with that that sense. I just really joined that sense. And once I felt like all the energies in my body from head to toe, like head all the way down into the earth where I was sitting on the cushion, I just felt like all of that energy returned to that stillness. 
And when I had a sense that my physical form and the energies of thought and um, sensations were were as still as they possibly could be, my attention spontaneously went out into the surrounding room and the surrounding world beyond the room where I could hear like frogs and a creek running by and crickets. And I just let my consciousness um explore like not explore in a in a seeking way but my consciousness just um delved into whatever sense of stillness i could sense in the larger world and i just merged with with that sense and there was also this sense that what was curious about it was was paradoxically entering that like a movement but also the what was looking was also very still and so it all all kind of merged into a sense of stillness and when it all felt like it was taken as far as it could I I got up and I went to bed and um I was laying down that I went to sleep and I lay down in a certain position and and I remained in that position for the whole whole night, and my consciousness just um, went into this sense of formless awareness. And what it felt like looking back is that the whole like kind of construct of who I took myself to be just um, merged into that formless awareness. And when later the next day. When um, some hours into the day, when I was uh, going about my day, um, I was all of a sudden in a situation at breakfast. Um, eating, I was eating on a on the carpet. We were all sitting on the floor, and somebody started doing these full prostrations to me, and um, I was just looking at at this woman doing these full prostrations to me, and all of a sudden it was as though I had some self awareness that I was a person, uh, whereas prior to that, the whole morning, it was this kind of traceless existence. And when I saw the the bowing in front of me, I just broke out in spontaneous um, laughter. And the sense was that um, what was looking out my eyes and what inhabited the house of my body was this sense of this eternity or empty 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 of the previous owner of the house empty of of my personality empty of my past but almost like i the first time i got the sense of what the word you know holy ghost might mean just the sense of of uh, no one home but eternity looking out of my eyes and um and I think there was just a spontaneous laughter because it, it struck me as so funny that that she would be bowing to 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 this um, this that had no owner. Um, and then, uh, as the day went on, just spontaneously that sense of um, emptiness, or you could say almost like a sense of the formless awareness looking out my eyes was taking in the the world around me and just spontaneously it was as though something flipped inside 
and that sense of what was looking out at the world just it just realized it it recognized itself as all of it all of existence that the very thing that was felt empty and formless that was looking out realized that it was it was all the forms it was looking at and so even though i know that as i'm describing it it sounds like i'm describing an experience and i am what i came to know not personally came to know but what presented in in this um movement of of formless awareness to recognize itself as form and become realized in in this form of this world, um, I realize that that is not an experience, even though I'm describing an experience. That is, um, it's hard to say what it is, but that is is an expression that points to something beyond or prior to experience. So since this event, I don't know whatever we want to call it, let's just say yeah. Mukti's sudden awakening, have there been times when you found yourself acting like a terribly unawakened person? I mean, you talked about how there's not as much you know, fear of getting a disease, but you know, just like, wow, I feel angry, jealous, vicious, etc. I'm tense in my body. I feel separate, etc. Uh, I could say yes to some of those, yeah. Um, I think that there, since then there's been times where um, my behavior felt off, you know, where it just didn't feel like it was in alignment with the, the deeper truth of, what, what, of the knowing that I was just describing. Um, however, it, it didn't... Even if I had had since then emotions that, um, you know, let's say I was angry. What was really different, for example, I I, I don't tend to be a very angry person, but I'm just going to take that one as a more juicy example. Um, What was different is that it was as though I couldn't be angry at any one or anything. It's like the anger is there and there's the frustration of not knowing how to bring what's happening into alignment and there's the... But simultaneously there's this awareness that the various um, ways that relating happened between people myself and another or or you know another and another that they are um it's as though they're patterns relating to patterns and the patterns have not come into harmony and it's not like i was able to tell myself all this stuff like oh this is a pattern relating to a pattern but what i did recognize was it was it was it's felt like impossible for me to be mad at a person, even if their actions are something that are triggering a response in me. I just ha- 
there was just this knowing that it was not about them. And that in, and essentially that it was not about me in terms of it was not about my essential nature or their essential nature. It, it was more playing out on the surface, so to speak. You know, I think one of the reasons why I started our conversation with embodied versus, if you will, disembodied awakening is, you know, I've met so many people now being in my role here at Sounds True who have claimed to be quote-unquote awakened, and yet I've felt in their presence various huge unconscious separateness. I mean, I can just feel it when I'm with them. I don't feel this sense of open, vast space. I feel something like judgment or positioning or separate self-ambition, something like that. And I think, well, maybe maybe they just haven't, quote-unquote, embodied their awakening yet. And then my next thought is, then why do I care very much about their awakening since it's not manifesting in a beautiful way in this moment? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious what you think about all of that. So many people running around having had awakening experiences, and yet their behavior, in many cases to me, seems like, what? Do I just say, well, they haven't fully embodied it yet? It makes me question what people refer to as awakening. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I definitely have a lot that I'd like to say about this. It's, it's kind of tricky. So, so me speaking to, to that, I can only speak from my direct experience, and anyone can only speak from their own direct sense of this, right? So... In my view, when I talk to people in my role as a spiritual teacher, I talk to various people, and and they'll come in and they'll they'll talk about their awakening. N- not that I'll often I don't even ask, you know, what if they've had an awakening or if if they mention an awakening. Sometimes I'll I'll ask them to describe it, but but mostly uh, I don't necessarily focus on it. But let's say a person comes in to talk to me and they're talking. Um, that they've assumed they've had this awakening. Part of my role is to assess what their definition of awakening is. Like what what is it that they're, um, how has their paradigm or their perspective of living shifted? Because there's all different kinds of awakenings. There's many, many different kinds of awakenings. And so, for example, there can be like, an awakening out of the pattern of seeking, like all seeking ceases. You know, there can be awakening out of like a core um, hub of the ego structure. You know, there can be awakening to emptiness, awakening to oneness, um, awakening to universal love. I mean, there's just tons of kinds of awakenings, let alone just having like a tremendous life-changing insight. You know, um, which can also be the, its own kind of awakening. So people are using the term in tons of different ways, and and part of uh, my job and my role is to assess how they're using it. And sometimes I'll ask clarifying questions for that, or sometimes I'll just glean from how they, what paradigm they're speaking from. I'll just get a sense of it. And I think. Um, 
the longer, the more you spend time around a person, the more you get a, I, I could get a sense of, of um, what areas of their being that awakening has penetrated and not penetrated. Now, I'm curious how you would apply that to yourself. So in terms of your definition of awakening and if you had to, now, you know, you're sort of splitting you into the teacher mukti and the person coming in to see you mukti. Yeah, that's Would fine. you be willing to say, oh, this is where I see mukti's awakening penetrating or not penetrating? Yes. Well, the tricky part of the whole way of discussing it is that there, like I was saying earlier, there's a way that you can travel from A to Z, like on the bungee cord. So you can know your your ultimate nature or the not even your nature but you can know the nature of reality that it's that expresses through your human consciousness um as awakening dawns right but so that knowing can be present but um it may not have penetrated certain patterns that may lead to um behaviors that um, just have some sense of being alignment with out of alignment with reality. So um, that's one way of talking about what you just said. And, and I could talk about my patterns, if you want, to some extent, if that's of any interest. But I think more, a more interesting way of, of, describe, of answering the question would be that... Um, My sense is that, as I described the uh, awakening experience earlier, there was this sense of existing without any self-consciousness for several hours after I woke up that morning and was walking around at the retreat functioning. And it was in the moment that the woman was fully prostrating to me that there was this sense of this realization of, eternal nature, the nature of eternity, that is. And then, and so in that moment of realization, there's this um, tentative thing that happens in this whole realm where when some degree of self-consciousness returns, an identity can solidify around that. And, like, for example, that's when you get some people who have, like, really awakened egos or, or things like that where there's a lot, most all of their egos still there, but there's still some sense of what they are that's beyond ego. But in my case, there was this sense of, for, for many days, of kind of living with just the lightest sense of self. And it wasn't so much even like a small personal self, but just this sense of what's sometimes called big self or um, universal self. So there, there is a way of being where, you, where there's a functioning in this world of time and space without any sense of self. Like earlier I was calling that traceless being. 
but then there's also some sense of operating from more of a sense of self. Even if that's, you know, the self called, you know, consciousness knowing itself in form. And then there's that solidifying even further to a sense of identified me, personal self, right? So for me, what what I feel has happened over the years is some fragments of the very, very personal me self returned and layered back on that very thin veneer of of big self, you could say. And as they returned, I've had opportunity to to really attend to those those strands of remaining construct and to um, to offer them means to their own liberation, like liberating the patterns themselves. But at this stage in my journey, there still is just the slightest vestiges of a sense of self. That's how I would describe it. Of course, I'm assessing myself, which isn't always the best, right, in certain circumstances, like, you know, the doctor treating herself or something. But there's just this no, this, this just this real direct sense having visited Z in that bungee jump from A to Z there's just some sense that I'm, you know, just having those kind of last um, holdouts of some sense of self that feel to be falling away. And and um, I don't, at this point, feel that there's quite as much that I can do to attend to that falling away. I don't even have an opinion as to whether it should fall away. I know that it can, I, in the sense that I've really followed, let's say, Adya's teachings and some others about the nature of no-self. And I have a very deep sense of what that no-self is, having, having such a you know, clear dip into that. But, um, but I think only a sense of self would have like an opinion as to whether or not that should be the the goal or the outcome. And so I don't really entertain it that way. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you, Mukti. And, you know, even though, you know, someone from the outside, the doctor could assess the patient, on the other hand, you know, it's always good to talk to the patient about what their experience is like. And I think that that's, it's so helpful for people because I think there's so much confusion about awakening because, as you said, people are using the same word to describe very different states of being and states of realization. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and from each perspective, it feels it can feel so um, dramatic, like those awakenings, that it can feel like such a shift that it can almost feel inconceivable that there could be any other shift or any larger context, you know, where, like... I think probably the most common kind of awakening would be uh, a- awakening to the nature of awareness that tends to register and take up residence more above the neck. And now I'm speaking more energetically. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way that 
when consciousness moves into the form of the the mind and body and emotional body, energy body, all of that of of the of the human form, there's there's a way that it can really take up resonance in certain centers of the being. And Adyul has talked about these a lot, which is where I've learned to speak about them too, which is from the head, heart, and gut. But he wasn't the only one. You know, like you look at Qigong, they talk about the three dantians, like the upper, middle, and lower, completely mapped to the head, heart, and gut and have been spoken about for centuries, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, But there can be this way that for many, many people who experience awakening, that upper dantian or the, the head center, you know, opens to to be available to consciousness or awareness to perceive the world through this center of the head. And those perceptions are dramatically different than the perceptions through the mind or through the head from a sense of separate egoic self that has no... um, not no, but that has hasn't been significantly penetrated by that wakefulness. So, um, from that perspective of o- awakening on the level of mind, the mind that would assess anything with respect to to basically the world of time and space that would kind of track things, monitor them, assess what's happening. When that feels awake, it concludes that the whole person is awake. But there's so many other ways that our vehicle functions, like like for example, you know, the functioning of of the heart or the functioning of of um I don't know, the the energy bodies, the chakras, the the gut, you know, the instincts, the there's so many other types of functioning that completely bypass assessment of mind or even like the directing of one's focus or attention of mind. And so, you know, they work just in a completely different paradigm. And so unless those are also awakened, the person who has awakening on the level of mind just assumes like it's it's done. They could. They could assume that and 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 not realize that there's so many other ways that consciousness can express through their human vehicle. Yeah, I mean, I might say that a disembodied awakening would be an awakening from the head up, you could say. Not that the head's not part of the body, but from the neck down, what's really going on in this person. Yeah, and I think I think... Um, I mean, it's possible to have an awakening, you know, in the gut or the heart or something before the head, you know, and you could maybe call that disembodied too, but I think that it's most common in the head. And, and also there's a way that because the head is is the uppermost center, it can have this this feeling of being disembodied because when awareness really penetrates the lower centers, it's moving towards the earth and it just, maps more closely to our connotations of what embodied means because embodied kind of implies like in form and just our whole way of sort of sensing what form is 
often relates very directly to this the map you know matter and earth and concrete right so it just kind of kinesthetically feels more embodied when when the awareness moves moves down mm-hmm. and you know roots more You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Mukti, there's another topic I want to talk to you about, yeah. so I'm going to move on here because there's a couple things I'd like to make sure we cover. So this next topic has to do with how in the audio series, The Self in Full Bloom, you mentioned early on how Adya is not just your husband, but that you also consider him to be your spiritual teacher. And I thought, God, I wonder what that's like. You know, I mean, as I was reflecting on this, I looked at my partner and I thought, well, you know, being a partner feels so different for me than how I associate the way that someone would feel about their spiritual teacher, someone you sort of look up to and you put on a higher plane, if you will, than yourself. They're more evolved than you are versus being an equal partner. So I'd love to understand that for you. It has evolved so much over the years because cause I was, you know, really present when Adya was first stepped into a teaching role or started a teaching role, which was, gosh, about 18 years ago or something. And um, so it's changed a lot over time, you know. Um, uh, but I think maybe what might feel more relevant to the question is kind of going back some number of years, you know, and um, probably from, from the beginning, I would just say that there was a way that somehow, um, well, probably the very beginning, and I won't tell you like a huge long story, I hope, but um, too long, but before I met Adya, um, I was asked a question once, like what, what do you most want in a partner? And I gave it a lot of thought. And um, not just thought, but like contemplation in my being. And kind of the two, two of the main things that I remember was that um, I wanted someone with um, an orientation to um, develop spiritually to the greatest extent possible in this life. And the other thing that I set an intention for was that I wanted a partner who could challenge me in this way. That when I was with them, I would be inspired in that endeavor even more. And so... From even from before I met him, like something got set into play where the two roles of partnership and teacher 
were were kind of like already, you know, intertwined. And so, but what happened when it started to actually play out was both he and I just somehow, by some grace, just kind of naturally would put on our, like, husband-wife caps and then we'd take them off when we went into the the room where he be, he, he would put on his teaching cap. Didn't you ever think, like, I'd like to put on my teaching cap and have you come in because I have some observations about you as well. That's how I would feel with my partner. Like, I would, you know, I'd be willing to hear what she had to say, but then I'd want to give put in my two cents. Well, what was great was it was a very small group at the time, and there was only a handful of us, so there was plenty of time to talk and dialogue. So I could jump in and say, well, what about this? What about that? And so I could, I had space to have a voice. And, but it wasn't like I had the desire to sit in his seat. I had the desire to sit in my seat and, and join the conversation. So that's the way it played out. At a certain point, um, way farther down the line when I kind of sensed that that maybe I can't remember if I was I felt that I was soon to be in the teaching role that I am now or maybe I was already in it and I would listen to him um, give talks and I would be thinking why is he presenting it that way like why wouldn't he say this or but I would I would just even when that would come up, like something in me would just be like, you don't know, just wait and watch. Watch, see what happens. And then I would see the the wisdom at work in the approach that he used, even though it would be completely different than what I would use. And I always kind of like came back to, for whatever reason, that person is in front of him right now. And when someone's in front of me, then intelligence will move through me the way it moves through me, and it's not going to look like them. But for whatever reason, you know, it all came together with he and that person and that expression of pointing in his teaching, and that's the way it played out there. And when it comes to somebody sitting in front of me, it's going to be completely different. And then in the midst of your everyday life as husband and wife, do you ever have the feeling of like, oh my God, my spiritual teacher just did X, Y, Z. Like, you know, it's one thing if your husband leaves dirty socks, you know, on the bed. But, you know, my spiritual teacher just did blah, blah. You know, I, I, I totally get the question. Why? Um, I don't think I've had that, to, is the short answer. And I think the reason why is because... Um, Well, I had a sense of our, our, the true nature of what all of us are from very early on in my student role with him. And because I know that what we ultimately are isn't defined by our, our human actions, um, I know that it can beautifully express through our human expression but I also know that sometimes there's just that human experience that we're having and that 
our spirit nature is is not against that. It's it's not trying to. It, it doesn't make that wrong. It's kind of like earlier when I was saying I couldn't be angry at a person, even if I felt like the energy of anger. It's like that. It's like I can see that Adya is maybe has actions or does things that may not live up to somebody's thinking idea about what enlightened activity is. But at the same time, like I just I know that that's not what he is. It's just that that's what he does. And sometimes what he does exhibits as just, you know, fantastic, like I love it. And sometimes what he does doesn't. But I, I don't see anything wrong with when it doesn't. I just see it as another opportunity to to see ever more clearly what's happening, to see how I'm reacting to it or to see what it is that's, where it is that he's speaking or moving from and what's happening. You know, I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to leave your socks around. You know, you could just be exhausted or you could just feel more at home that way or, you know, you could just simply forget to pick them up, not realizing you left them there. You know, it's not necessarily that you're just like, oh, like I don't give a shit about, you know, my wife liking to have a clean house. Yeah. I guess, okay, so before we leave this, I guess my last question would just be, has it felt to you that you're in a quote-unquote equal relationship? Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, perhaps at times with him is that my role as a teacher, I, I didn't, haven't always thought that. At some level, I felt it, but um, it's kind of similar to how I felt with my parents. You know, there were times where um, I just I didn't agree with what they're saying. I didn't, you know, necessarily want to do what they're instructing me to do. But underneath it, I knew that I was 100% loved. And so in that sense, I knew that I was equal because I was like, they loved me as a whole person, just as I was. And it's just very similar with my relationship with Adia as a teacher. There was just that sense that fundamentally he and I both know that we're not only equal, we're the same. And that it's not only that, that we're the same, that we're all the same. And so that foundation is present while on the surface sometimes he has more experience and he has had a lot more experience in certain realms that I've learned from and some some areas that I have more experience in or more refined or developed expression in that he learns from me. Okay, Mukti, so the last thing I'd love us to cover is an actual experience of self-inquiry. And what I noticed is that in your new series, The Self in Full Bloom, Teachings and Practices for an Embodied Awakening, the section in which you taught on self-inquiry was really, really useful to me. To be honest with you, I learned more about self-inquiry listening to you teach on it than I have in any other book or program I've ever been exposed to. And you know, often when people teach about self-inquiry, they're like, okay, inquire into the self. 
who am I? And for me, it, it falls flat. I've never really gotten a handle on it. So I wonder if you could both introduce the practice and then take us through an experience. Okay. So in particular, you're, uh, so there's like, just very quickly, there's different kinds of inquiry that would be called self-inquiry, kind of like how we were talking earlier, people use the term awakening in a lot of different ways. You know, self-inquiry, sometimes people are just like questioning their thoughts that are causing them suffering, or they're they're becoming curious and kind of questioning an emotion that's arising within them, and just kind of hanging out with what it's about and what what's trying to express, or you know what their missing experience was, or whatever it is. And and then there's a kind of inquiry that I really feel is a true self inquiry, which is inquiry that is questioning consciousness itself. Let's go right it's for that it. one. Let's go for that. Okay. Let's do it. So it's so those kinds of questions are what I'm speaking about is let's just take like some of the classical words that people have given to um consciousness or, or God or spirit. You know, what is what's the nature of that? You know, and some of the classical things that are pointed to is are like stillness, like I've been talking about, or silence, or um, unborn, undying, um, unconditioned, uh, eternal, you know, so ever-present, you know, things like that, or or perhaps something that almost feels more like the senses, like, um, like receptive space or um, clear seeing or stuff like that. Those are like, even though essence of what we are is is without quality until it's conscious of its expression as form, there's still ways that we, that historically consciousness or awareness has been given these kinds of attributes like silence or stillness. So those are a great, those attributes are great things to become curious about in self-inquiry. So like with myself, I ask the question, what is stillness? Yes, someone else might um, ask the question, what is silence? And in, let's say, for example, in the, in the koan, in, in Zen, you know, like when a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to, to hear it, does it make a sound? I mean, that's like a really traditional Zen koan that's, that's pointing to someone to explore um, what is it that that expresses um, prior to sound, apart apart from sound, you know, it's it's pointing people to the formless. Like what what is that 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 um, is prior to the form called sound? You know, and it may not necessarily on the part of the person doing the con, like take them. They may not go that direction with it, but I'm just saying that all of these self-inquiry questions really are, like like in Zen, what, what's your true face before your parents were born? They're really pointing you back to the nature of spirit that's eternal, that that 
that exists apart from the comings and goings of form and the passing of experience. So I think that's that's really juicy self-inquiry, um, especially when it's a question that somebody resonates with. You know, like, what is the source? You know, the source of anything. Like, what is love's source? What is this thought's source? Like, meaning, where does this thought arise from? But I think it can be powerful to shape the question so that it ends with that word source, so that it does drop you into the lake of your being and into that unknown, so that the answer, um, the revelation that comes can come from a true not knowing. Like a, a, you really, a person really needs to be completely open to the revelation for it to come, so they have to step out of everything they know. So, um, so those are are great kinds of self inquiry questions. Could you take us through an experience where the listener? chooses a question, and we go through how to practice self-inquiry together? Okay, sure. Well, I'm going to borrow one. um, I'll say it a little bit differently, but I'm going to borrow one that I heard from Adya many, many years ago because it it helped me so much because I had heard so much about this inquiry question, um, who or what am I? And I remember thinking, I don't even have any interest in this question. And and partly it was because whenever I asked it, I would go up into the databanks of my mind to to try to find um, an answer. Um, but when he talked about that dropping the pebble into the lake of being, that question, what am I, began to take more life. And in particular, he... I got the sense, whether he said it or not, that I got the sense that it would almost be more appropriate. I don't think he said this. This is my sense. What to reword the question and say, what is I am? Because often, you know, God or spirit has been called the I am. And so that helped me kind of take it out of this notion that the I had anything to do with me or had anything to do with the the questioner, me as the one posing the question, the I that's at the center of my experience right now. It, it totally cleared the slate of my definitions of the word I and my connotations for that by asking what is the I am? What is I am? So as an exercise, you can, you can sit upright or stand upright if you're more comfortable. And energetically to, to assist you in feeling more open and receptive, you can sit with your spine relatively straight and your, your chin just, just parallel with the floor 
so that the flat of your head just opens, the crown of your head opens to the heavens. And the the energy that, there's actually like a channel of energy, but a channel that just comes down through the core of the body, down in front of the spine, all the way down into the earth and connects and roots into the earth. So if you sit with just the the sense of this, it can be helpful initially just to establish that that visual of opening to heaven and earth and aligning with that connection. Um, And then going back to Adya's image of pretending like you're a lake, like a clear, still mountain lake, and you're going to drop almost like you're reaching your hand up toward the sky, but your hand is holding this pebble that's just that's imbued with the question. And then you release, you just softly open your hands and you let the pebble fall down into the water and you let the question carry. And the question is, what is I am. And your awareness can just follow that. And as it's released, you can just release even the image of the pebble. It doesn't, you don't have to keep following up your attention. It can, you can just transfer your attention into the ripple of the question that's released. It just dissolves into the water and ripples through your being. And there may be a way in which you may feel a kind of opening of the body and the being as your attention just opens to merge with this question. And if you're drawn to let that sense of openness drop any further in your body, like, for example, from your chest down into your belly, you can also do that and just let just the sense of that opening ripple of the sense of I am. Ripple through your whole being, above and below, through and through. And any sense of the person who, of yourself, any sense of yourself that might have expectation or be awaiting the answer, see if it's possible for that energy of 
expectation to to also let down and just join this rippling into being, just joining this sense of I am. you'll notice that the knowledge that you come to in true self-inquiry is is not a knowledge that's acquisition of thought, but it's a knowledge that's a knowing of being. It's a knowing of being. Thank you, Mukti. You're so welcome, and and thank you, too. I've been speaking with Mukti, and with Sounds True, Mukti has recorded a new six-session audio series. It's called The Self in Full Bloom, Teachings and Practices for an Embodied Awakening. And it includes quite a bit of teaching on self-inquiry, some really interesting and helpful insights on masculine and feminine expressions of awakening, and so many discoveries, Mukti, on this whole topic of what is embodied awakening. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for being with us.